Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, the importance of condemning political violence and political hypocrisy. Also, recalling politicians that screw up. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show on True North. Thank you so much for tuning in. And what we try to ensure is a beacon of liberty. And that includes the right to speak freely. That includes the right to protest. That includes the right to own firearms, the right to live your life, the right to spend your money the way you want to. These are all things we stand up for. Nowhere in the list of liberties that free citizens enjoy is the destruction of property, the destruction of other people's rights to life or liberty. And this is what we have to push back against in governments all the time. When governments decide they do not want to recognize other people's rights to freedom, rights to enjoy the fruits of their own labor, rights to assembly. It's what we've been condemning throughout the entirety of the COVID-19 lockdowns and the snitch culture that people in Canada and in Western societies all around the world have embraced. But the reason I talk about this now is because these rights do not cover what happened this week at the United States Capitol. The right to protest is not the right to destroy. It's not the right to riot. It's not the right to storm a house of government or any other building for that matter. And this is the very thing that I said months ago when Black Lives Matter and Antifa rioters were doing the same thing to businesses that were owned by everyday people. When businesses had to board up and actually spray paint on their sides that they were minority owned in hopes that they might be spared from the rioters. And when the left and the media were saying that, oh, well, these were just mostly peaceful. Remember this? I I, I want to be clear in how I characterize this. This is mostly a protest. Uh, It is not not generally speaking unruly, but fires have been started. I was the one among many others and many of you tuning in saying that that was a load of nonsense. I would be a tremendous hypocrite to not direct that same ire to what happened on the Capitol. Now, before I get into this, I know that there are a lot of people that are of two minds on this. On one hand, I get people on the right that I see on Twitter that are cheering this on and saying, well, how else are you going to respond to a rigged system and a fraudulent election and all of that? And then I get other people that are saying, well, no, this isn't actually the right. This is all undercover Antifa operatives meant to look the right look bad. These two are irreconcilable. Either you're cheering them on or you think what they're doing is terrible and meant to give people on the right a bad name. I don't think either is true. I think what happened is wrong. I think you may have some undercover Antifa agitators or belligerents in there, but I think that there's a lot of anger from people, and I understand that anger. And I'm going to talk about it on this show, and a lot of that allowed people to be consumed by it and to jump in and storm in when they saw an opportunity and when they looked around and saw that everyone else was doing it. Four people are dead because of what happened at the U.S. Capitol. Four people are dead. One of them was shot in the neck. I'm not going to show the video footage, but if you are someone who wants to see it for yourself, you can find it very easily online. It's chilling. A woman shot in the neck, or it might have been the chest, but either way, someone who died as part of this group. Now, I do not think that what happened there should have happened. 
I don't think that anyone should have been in the building. I don't think police should have fired. I don't think that any of this episode makes anyone look good or deals with any of the underlying issues that a lot of the protesters were claiming to uh, understand and claiming to speak for. Now, I want to make a very significant point here that has been lost in the media. There is a difference between the protesters outside and the rioters inside. And when I'm talking about people who are in the wrong here, I'm talking about the ones who stormed the gates, the ones who broke the window, the ones who crossed over the threshold, the ones who walked into the doors of this house of government with the intent to disrupt, with the intent to destroy, with the intent to do who knows what else. I'm not talking about the people who were exercising their First Amendment's right to stand outside and protest. The people who, by and large, occupied the majority, the majority of the protesters present in Washington, D.C. The people who we saw on news footage before sundown were leaving, were walking the other way. That is fine. That is protest. Same as people who are Black Lives Matter protesters who took a knee, who yelled about whatever they wanted to yell about, who held their signs. That's First Amendment. Your right to free speech ends when your actions all of a sudden aim to destroy or harm or take away someone else's right. Whether it's blocking traffic, whether it is vandalizing, looting, burning, whatever the case may be. So yes, people who wanted to stand outside on Capitol Hill and protest, have at it. That is what America is about. That is what freedom is all about. The people who went inside, you are terrorists. You are terrorists. If you destroy, if you raid a government building for political reasons, that is an act of terrorism. It is. There is no other way to describe it. And you know what? I have a lot of friends who are members of parliament who were sitting in the House of Commons in 2014 when a gunman with his own political ideology and Islamic terrorists stormed Parliament Hill. And I know how they feel. Some of them actually took therapy because they needed to deal with the trauma of what happened, not knowing what they were in the midst of, not knowing if they were being targeted, not knowing if they would make it out alive. Now imagine the feeling of the people inside, Democrats, Republicans, staffers, janitors, cafeteria workers, people who have no skin in the game in many cases, and on other sides, people that may even agree with your point. When they find out that hundreds of people, perhaps thousands, we have no idea how many people actually went in, are storming, some of them armed, illegally I might add, is this helping anyone? Is this helping your cause? Even if you take aside the illegality and the immorality, does it help your case? Just look at this through practical reasons alone. The damage that what happened yesterday did to the political right is monumental. As Will Chamberlain pointed out on Twitter, worse than what happened at Charlottesville. So people on the right need to condemn this, just as we expect and demand that people on the left condemn violence from their own and rioting from their own. So I have no time for the hypocrites on either side of this. I have no time for the lefties who were apologists for Black Lives Matter riots and the ones calling it mostly peaceful who on this think it's an act of war, just as I have no time for the law and order conservatives who wanted to throw the book at the BLM rioters while on this saying, well, you know, can you understand their anger? And I look, if, if that is what you're doing, if you're trying to parse and look at what is essentially the same action 
but trying to make it justifiable in one context and not in the other. You are looking at this in a hypocritical way, and I'm sorry, but you've got to reevaluate that position. The anger is real, the frustration is real, the division is real, and all of that needs to be addressed. All of that needs to be addressed, but you do not solve that by storming the Capitol, by storming anyone else's building. Even if it is, as many people have termed it, the people's building, that does not give you a hall pass in a literal or figurative sense when you have to break a window to get in. And here's the thing. I am someone who, like so many Canadians, especially Canadians who lean politically right, has grown up with my face pressed up against the window of the United States of America. The land of liberty, the beacon of freedom. This is what I have raised. And I've been raised... By the way, like so many of you, looking at that country and seeing something to aspire to. And if you are a patriot, if you are someone who loves your country, whether it's Canada or the United States, it means that you love your country and also trust that your country can overcome its division. And trust that your country has a system that can overcome strife. So even if you look at the American election of 2020 and think that the election was rigged and think that the votes shouldn't have been certi certified... You have to, if you again, believe in your country, you have to respect that there is a judicial process, a legislative process, and yes, an executive process. Now, if you think that all of those processes failed, and believe me when I say I understand that, I've been following this since election day in the United States, you also have to accept that the armed rebellion if that's what you want to call it, the attempted insurrection, or at the very least, the protest that got out of hand is not changing any of that. What's happened? Hours later, Congress resumes, the Electoral College votes are certified, the same outcome happened, but with four people unnecessarily dead. Was there a net gain from this? Is anyone better off? Was a point made? No, absolutely not. And if anything, it's a lot harder. Look at what happened with Kelly Leffler, the Georgia senator, who actually withdrew her objection to the Electoral College results because of what happened. So if you believe that this was at all justifiable, it actually set your movement back. It set your movement back. Now, a lot of people are going to wonder, oh, well, why is he spending so much time criticizing the right? I'm not. I'm criticizing a small subset of the right that's so concerned about owning the libs that they don't actually realize there is an importance in intellectual consistency and honesty. And if you do believe that this was justifiable because of your belief about the American election, well, what happens when another group believes that its storming of the Capitol building is justifiable because of a belief they hold? What if BLM, who genuinely believes that the system is systemically racist and that the system is responsible for slaughtering blacks, decides that it's going to take up an armed rebellion and storm the gates of the Capitol? What happens if another group, feeling it is the victim of a gross injustice, decides it's going to storm the Capitol because, well, the system has failed, this is our only response? That is how decisions are made in banana republics. And for all the people saying, well, they're not rioters, they're not terrorists, they're revolutionaries, and people pointing to the fact that it was a rebellion that gave the United States the existence of the United States, first off, there are monumental differences between then and now that we don't have time to get into, but secondly, it's not working. It's not working. It's not accomplishing anything. 
It is not achieving the desired result. It is making everyone involved look bad. And yes, people that genuinely stand up for freedom and stand up for the rule of law and stand up for free speech have, I believe, a moral obligation to condemn it, just as we all expected the left to do the same. And the left didn't, which is why we need to be able to say that we are better than them when it comes to this. Though we condemn the people that do wrong on our side in our name, the left doesn't. That's the whole point of this. And, that, and you lose the moral high ground to make those determinations and make those distinctions when you start turning a blind eye to people on your side. Now, if we find out that this is all one big Antifa plot, great. But condemn the evidence. And not great, by the way. It would be terrible because the fact that anyone did this, the fact that anyone did this, is wrong. So when I look at... What has happened in the last, what, 16, 24 hours, however long ago it was that this first started? The protest was fine. I may not agree, I may disagree, I may agree, it doesn't matter. The protest itself was fine. The second that protest takes a step over that line, and that's a figurative and a literal line, and people are starting to scale walls, it is no longer about protest. It is about the very thing that people on the right have been condemning for months and for years. Black Lives Matter riots, rail blockades in a Canadian context, and many other chapters of a very similar form over the last several years. Politically speaking, I get why people don't want Joe Biden to be president, and I get why people think Joe Biden didn't actually win the election. But if you believe in the country that you are trying to uphold, and this is, by the way, not just about Americans. A lot of people, a lot of freedom-loving people around the world are invested in what happens in the United States. If you believe in this country and these ideals that you think are under attack from Joe Biden, you have to believe that your country is bigger than Joe Biden. You have to believe that the United States is big enough and strong enough to combat these things without an attempted insurrection. Now, I don't know what the mentality was behind most of the people that were involved yesterday. I do genuinely believe that we're talking about a, a slim minority overall that thought there was a violent justification for what they wanted to do. It's a slim minority, but enough, enough of them. So I think that, again, you had some instigators. You had a lot of people that were just going along for the ride. You had a lot of people that were consumed by mob mentality, which is why when they got in, we didn't actually see a huge amount of destruction. And I'm not for a second justifying it. I'm pointing out an oddity of it. That on some people you had, uh, in some cases, you had people that were flipping over stuff. But in other cases, the bulk of the damage was, I'm taking a selfie in Nancy Pelosi's office. Or, ooh, I'm taking an envelope from Nancy Pelosi's desk. I mean, I mentioned in passing to a friend yesterday, and I'm glad this didn't happen, but if people really wanted to do damage, a lot of these computers were left completely abandoned, still logged in when everyone started evacuating. Why was no one downloading anything? Why was no one looking into situations in that way? So this was not a planned and organized rebellion. So anyone who says it's like a revolution in the making, I mean, it lacks the cohesion and organization that revolutions typically have, certainly successful ones. 
So this is going to be a situation that gets worse before it gets better. Donald Trump is going to not be the president as of January 20th. If you think he was the lawfully elected president, okay. But legally, in the literal sense, he will not be the one sitting in the White House. That will be Joe Biden. How people decide they're going to get over what's happened in America in the last four years, I have no idea. And this is not just an attack unilaterally on people on the right, because people on the left have been not recognizing the result of the 2016 election since 2016. And they have been declaring themselves the resistance and saying that Trump was not their president and boycotting the inauguration. So the division and polarization that we can mount, uh, that we can see mounting is not exclusively the purview of the political right. And anyone trying to say that Trump created this is missing the mark entirely. Trump is a product of this, perhaps, because Trump was elected because of anger that existed from Americans who felt like they had been ignored by everyone else who had been in office, Republican and Democrat, for generations. So Donald Trump did not cause this. I would argue his video yesterday didn't make things better. He told people to go home, but also was not condemning it. And the fact, though, that we had people in the Trump administration who were making these moral stands by resigning, it, you know what, tends to be a bit more hollow a, a sign when you resign from a job that you're going to be out of in two weeks anyway. So a lot of those, I, I kind of question what the motivations truly were. But the whole point is that the country and all people on left and right need to heal moving forward. If that sounds like hippy-dippy lefty language, I'm sorry. But what's happening now, what's happening this week is not sustainable. And we are seeing the death of disagreement, the death of division, the death of discourse, and the death of being able to look across the aisle in a way that always used to be the hallmark of democratic societies, but now is vilified. No one wants to sit down and break bread with their neighbor. No one wants to discuss their differences with someone. We want to see someone as our 20% enemy instead of our 80% friend, whereas I would rather see someone as my 10% friend instead of my 90% enemy. I don't have the answer to this, but I know that violence isn't it. And yes, you may see violence against a building as not being violence, but it is. When you're storming the gates, when you're forcing people to hide under desks, it is violence. And if you think that what happened yesterday in Washington was justifiable, check yourself, please. Back in a moment with more of The Andrew Lawton Show. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. I want to bring attention back to things back home here for the next few moments anyway. Certainly political anger and political frustration, very real, even in a domestic context. We talked a lot the last couple of shows about uh, politicians who have been telling us to hashtag stay home, but themselves were hanging out in St. Bart's or Hawaii, where I think pretty much uh, everyone in Alberta's government was in Hawaii in the last month, with the exception of one or two people. And yeah, we've had some people resign from cabinet and leadership positions, but beyond that, what real recourse is there? Well, an op-ed in the Edmonton Sun by Franco Terrazano from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation says these vacations show why Albertans need recall legislation. Franco Terrazano joins me on the line now. Uh, good to talk to you again. Thanks for coming on today. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So for those of us not familiar with the concept, what is recall legislation? 
Well, recall legislation is a very important accountability tool and it allows voters to collect petitions. And if we collect enough petition, it allows us to force a by-election so that we can uh, hold a misbehaving politician accountable. And what's so important about this is that right now we can only hold politicians accountable once every four years during an election. Uh, but recall legislation would give us the ability that we deserve uh, to hold politicians accountable all year round. That's, I think, an important point, but you did allude to it there. You have elections. The point of politicians being elected for terms is that voters can go and, and turf them if they don't like the job they're doing. Why do you need a, a stopgap? Why do you need something between elections? Well, I mean, of course, elections are an important accountability tool, but the problem is, is that they're only once every four years. Now, imagine if a boss was only able to hold their employees accountable every four years. I mean, certainly you would see employees um, have uh, misbehave, maybe not show up for work or, or do things of that nature. Right. And so the same thing applies here, because let's remember, um, it's the people who are the boss of politicians, not the other way around. Politicians aren't our boss. We're their boss. And as such, we deserve the right to hold them accountable not once every four years, not just during an election, um, but all year round and every year during that mandate. One concern that I have, I mean, we know full well the polarity and, and polarization of politics, not just in the U.S., as we've seen with the, the events of this week, but, but even in Canada, we know that there is a lot of right versus left divide all the time. Is there a risk that recall could be a, a bit weaponized in a way where, you know what, let's say you're an NDP voter, you vote NDP, you don't like that a conservative wins, regardless of how well they do, you want to just go right to that recall process because you don't like that they won in the first place? Well, you know what? You bring up a really good point, um, but I actually see recall legislation as doing the opposite. I see it as a very productive way to channel uh, frustrations into the democratic process, right? Because right now, if we're frustrated, we have to wait four years um, to hold a politician accountable. I mean, what, what, what choice do we really have? But with recall legislation, we can take our frustrations, we can take our anger, and we can put it into the democratic process. And that's why I see another reason why recall legislation is so important. And, and let's talk about the, um, the, the travel scandal that we're facing right now. Mm. Right now, we have to wait for backroom political brokering um, for a solution. Um, but you know who should really have the final say? It should be us, the voters, the people. Yeah, that's actually an interesting point, because at first, in, in the Alberta context, there was going to be no punishment for it. There was going to be no penalty. Jason Kenney, as we talked about on this show previously, said that he didn't lay out the expectations. And it was only because of backlash a few days later that that tended to reverse. So yes, you could argue there was a bit of responsiveness to public anger, but only if the prerogative of the Premier's office was to recognize that. So you're right that there otherwise wouldn't have been a mechanism if the Premier's office had stuck with its initial response to this. You know, that is correct, because originally Premier Jason Kenney said he didn't think he could sanction these politicians. Mm -hmm. And of course, at the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, we said, well, if you don't think you can sanction your politicians, I'm sure voters are up to the job. And let's remember here, you know, we did see a cabinet minister step down and we did see politicians lose their committee roles. But at the end of the day, um, the final say should be with Albertans or with voters, whether or not they remain as members of the legislature. So we should have the ability to hold them accountable. And that means we should have the ability to fire them when they misbehave. Do you think it is just about having the ability to recall politicians or also would you extend that to recalling legislation, which is a, another format of recall that we've seen where instead of getting people out of office, you just go after specific laws or bills they've put into place? 
I'm glad you brought that up. So, so they, we actually have that in Canada in one province, and that's BC. In BC, we have recall legislation, but we also have what, what you brought up there, which is called citizens' initiative. And that lets us um, to repeal bad legislation or bring forward legislation. Now, that's very important, right? Because recall, if people are the boss over politicians, we should be able to fire them when they misbehave. But with citizens' initiative, if legislation, if law belongs to the people, then we should be able to repeal bad legislation when it goes against our wishes. Now, let, let me provide you with a pretty co concrete example of where that would have applied in Alberta. You know, we have the NDP previously, they came to office, they didn't run on a carbon tax, and what did they do? They hammered struggling families and struggling businesses with a carbon tax, increased the cost of living at the worst possible time. Well, it's pretty obvious that Albertans did not want a carbon tax. So if we had citizens' initiative, we would have been able to repeal that bad legislation and uh, give our economy a little bit of a break. Now, we know that the British Columbia recall is actually pretty rare. I mean, I think there's only been one instance where it's been used. So why do you think there is a need or an appetite for this when the province that has it hasn't really seen it used all that much? I'm glad you brought that up, and I'm going to say uh, two things on that. So first, you know, BC's uh, legislation been in place since 1995, only one successful recall campaign. But the reason for that is uh, the high threshold. You know, you need 40% of the votes uh, to even trigger a by-election. And that's one of the reasons the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, we're recommending that Premier Kenny do a threshold of 25% of the votes. So, so less onerous for, for BC. Uh, or then BC. Now, here's another important part about recall legislation. Not only is it important to actually uh, force a by-election, but recall legislation in and of itself could actually prevent a politician from misbehaving in the first place. Um, you know, I don't think it takes a PhD in psychology to understand that a politician will probably behave better <laughs> if they have to face the voters tomorrow yeah. rather than in four years. Yeah, when I used to work in politics, there was the old adage that you get all the unpopular stuff out of the way in year one because you know that everyone will have forgotten about it by year four. But if there is that sort of sword of Damocles hanging over their head with recall, they have to have that year four mentality every day, not just with laws, but even with just personal behaviors and decisions like with the vacation scandals. Yeah, or personal expenses, right? Maybe yes. a politician will think twice before dipping their fingers into the taxpayer cookie jar. Um, and here's another thing in Alberta. We also had in, in 2020, we had a, a huge expense scandal from one of our councillors, Councillor Meglioka, um, who, who went to Quebec, spent a ton of money, more than his colleagues, on even things like steak and martinis. Well, you know, if we had that recall legislation extended to the local level, he probably would have thought twice before he did that. You have, obviously, an Alberta context to your op-ed and, and most of the discussion we've had now. You are the uh, Alberta director of the CTF. But is there any reason this couldn't be implemented in other provinces or even at the federal level? Well, I think we should see it in other provinces and at the federal level. It's not just a Western Canadian thing. I mean, if, if I'm not mistaken, this whole holiday scandal broke out because of an Ontario minister, right? And yeah, that's our uh, proud export to the rest of the country, the vacation <laughs> scandal. So, yeah, so there you go. Clearly, it would have been uh, helpful for the, for the good people of Ontario. And remember, it's not just about whether or not the politician holds on to their, their cabinet position or not. It should be up to the voters whether or not they remain as politicians. Now, I would say that on this, there's probably reason to be a, a little bit hopeful. Jason Kenney did promise this initially, uh, and it sounds like there's at least some movement on it. 
Yeah, well, so when Premier Kenny, when he was campaigning for votes back before the 2019 provincial election in Alberta, he promised the very important tool of recall. Um, last year, in the 2020 uh, February throne speech from our government, they also doubled down on that promise of recall legislation. But, you know, we're, we're, we're still waiting for it. Uh, we did have a private member's bill bring recall to the floor, but that died. Um, but just recently, actually, we're hearing Premier Kenny now say that he's going to bring it forward during this winter session. So we're going to be watching for it, but this is something that we need. It's something that would have come in handy to deal with this holiday scandal. And it's something that we're definitely going to have to keep holding his feet to the fire on. Yeah, and I think certainly other provinces in the country should be paying attention to this. I, I mean, I know with the Reform Party roots in Alberta, there is a lot more of a direct democracy origin there. But as you've mentioned, I, I mean, political accountability is not limited to the West at all. Well, it shouldn't be limited to the West. And, and it really, if, if the politicians, if they think that they're behaving the way that their constituents want them to behave, then they really should have no issue with this, right? Um, what we saw in BC is we saw a, a pretty big uh, scandal force the issue. It's These tens, types of things don't tend to happen over day to day, right? Um, recall legislation tends to be invoked when there is a scandal, when you get a politician who's dipping their hands into the taxpayer cookie jar. So if politicians aren't doing that, then they shouldn't have anything to worry about. Yeah, it's the epitome of one of those pieces of legislation you want to have, but never want to have to use. So uh, we'll certainly keep an eye out for it. Franco Terrazano, Alberta Director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, and that op-ed you can find at the Edmonton Sun. Sun-soaked vacations show why Albertans need recall legislation. Franco, thanks again for coming on today. Hey, man, thanks for having me on. And that does it for us. We will be back next week with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show on True North. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.